Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everybody. This is Shannon and Kathy with Terror Talk. Today on the show, we are starting our four-part series on Jeffrey Dahmer, and uh, Kathy's going to introduce what we're doing. Hello. Yeah, I think I'm, we've been anticipating talking about this dude for quite some time. And um, let me just say, I have complete appreciation for everything you had to sit through regarding Manson, because this is heavy stuff. You know, I had to really do some of it in chunks. And what I did with um, this guy was I did read some books, but I actually watched more videos just because I was really interested in watching his composure and his affect. And um, so I ended up getting a lot of my research from some of the documentaries and videos as well. But tonight, you know, we are going to start our four part series on Jeffrey Dahmer. And I think most people are, are pretty familiar with who he is, but if you are not, um, he's certainly one of the most controversial serial killers um, in the United States. Um, and when I say controversial, it's, it's mostly when I say that it's regarding um, the psychological perspective of his makeup and um, sort of the lack of diagnostic precision that many of the forensic psychologists and evaluators had around um, trying to, to really get a grasp on what happened and how he became this way and what his diagnosis was. Because as we get into his story, it's really bizarre. <laughs> which is, um, that's minimizing it. It's, Clinical it's really sick. But um, the, he has a, a very interesting presentation. And I guess what I mean by that is, and this, this is quite controversial when I say this, but many people um, believe that what makes Jeffrey different from most notorious serial killers was his empathy, um, as well as his desire to stop his murders and cannibalism. Mm -hmm. um, and despite his efforts, he wasn't able to stop. So we could say that, you know, that isn't true. He never really had that desire. He was lying about it. But it seems pretty static along the way that he really had this internal struggle and he, he really did want to stop. And um, we'll get more into uh, how he sort of demonstrates or the evidence behind the empathy when we get further into his story. But as far as who Jeffrey Dahmer is, he was known as the Milwaukee cannibal or the Milwaukee monster. He was an American serial killer and sex offender who committed the rape, murder, and dismemberment of 17 men and boys from 1978 to 1991. Um, many of his, his later murders, so he did start with, um, you know, kind of your classic knock him out, suffocate him kind of stuff. And as his compulsions grew, his later murders involved necrophilia, which is, you know, having some sort of sexual contact with a, a corpse, um, cannibalism, and the permanent preservation of body parts. So typically all or part of the skeleton, he would also keep pieces of organs um, and eventually he would begin to eat them. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, he had, he had a lot going on. Yeah. So uh, a few of his quotes just to, I'd like to, what I'd like to try to do is get people sort of into his personality. Um, 
as, as you all listen. But a few of the quotes from one of the books that I, I read, one said, my consuming lust was to experience their bodies. These will have a lot more context later on. Uh, another one is, I don't even know if I have the capacity for normal emotions. And the other is, I think in some way I wanted it to end, even if it meant my own destruction. And he says that, I believe he says that during the trial. So um, how old were you, Shannon? Like when all of this was going on with Dahmer, what would you say? Do you remember all this being in the news? Yeah, like I wasn't really aware of it. Um, I was pretty young. I think by the time, well, no, I mean, I guess by the time he was caught. No, I was a young adult. No. Yeah, 1991. I was a young adult. Okay. I mean, I remember it vaguely. I I don't know. I remember, you know, what was what was present in the media, of course, was the fact that he was, you know, keeping dead bodies in his apartment. Yeah, and eating people. Yeah. That's what I remember. I was in junior high. I was in middle school, mm. and I grew up in the Midwest. Yeah. So, and his family, um, you know, I think he, there's parts of his family in Ohio, uh, Milwaukee, he was in Chicago at one point. So, and I'm from the Detroit area. So this was like a really big deal for people lived in the Midwest. Governor Michigan next. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, crazy. Uh, but I remember being a younger kid and hearing about this in the news and really being freaked out. Okay. Um, so that is um, sort of my introduction to him. One of the things that I wanted to talk about briefly with you before we get into his case as well, is, and we've done bits of this here and there with Bundy and with Manson, but because we're both you know, in the mental health profession and there are certain things that we understand that some of our listeners, if you're in the mental health profession or maybe you just read up on it, might understand and other people may not have as much education around it is just talking a little bit about how personality develops. Right. Um, and so, you know, I know there's different theoretical orientations around personality development, but I don't know, Shannon, did you want to say anything about just maybe where you sit? Yeah. So, I mean, my, if you're a regular listener and you're in the shrink world, you may have picked up on this already, but my, my basic perception of psychology is from a psychodynamic perspective and also that personality is, developed and created over time with through events but also through you know your soul your spirit your what you how you orient to the world and then all of the different kinds of things that you react to basically from and you develop defenses and those defenses against harm psychological harm give me indicators of what your personality structure is yeah. I, and I would say that a, a lot of what, um, where you sit is very similar to mine. I would add that I'm, I'm also really big on attachment theory. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I do believe that, uh, early attachment styles, how we attach to our parents or don't attach to our parents, um, how personality development of oneself can be related to deprivation or, or the way we you know, separate and individuate from our caregivers. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I don't think you can really work with children and not see that like flat right. face. 
Absolutely. And I do agree with you that it develops over time and it has a lot to do with um, our experiences, our resiliency, our support system. Um, but it's certainly not something we're born with. No. And, and I do think that, you know, we have talked about psychopathy in other episodes, which is actually very rare. And psychopathy alludes to the fact that people are born with almost like a neurological shift or deficit, if you will. And that's very different from um, narcissism or sociopathy, which is much more about environmental influences. Right. I mean, I think it sounds to me like what you'd really like people to understand is for us that there's very clear differences between personality structures and personality orientations and Mm -hmm. how people act with regards to their basic personality and mm-hmm. then, and then psychopathy, mental illness, and that the it's it's for yeah. us it's the difference between access one and access two, <laughs> right, right. But right. I, I'm not a I'm not a DSM strict devotee, so nor am I. Yeah, you know, I obviously in our profession we have to follow the DSM, and and that's the thing we have to do legally and ethically. But there's so much, the DSM fails us in so many ways. So I get, sure. I get that you're saying, you know, that there's, there's big difference between calling someone a psychopath and saying that they're a narcissist. And a lot of people, and I think a lot of our culture, put those two things together. Exactly. And, and so, and why this is relevant, the reason why I'm even introducing this to people who are listening is as we go along here with Dahmer, um, his background is is complicated, but also not entirely abnormal. Mm. Um, We're not dealing with someone like Manson, whose mother was in and out of prison, and he was exposed to all these strange things. And we're not dealing with somebody like Bundy, who had, you know, didn't even know if his mom was his mother or his sister on top of all this other. So we're looking at a kid who grew up in the Midwest with definite stressors, Mm -hmm. but ends up uh, becoming this raging sociopath. Right. Um, and some people will even disagree with that. They might they some people even believe he was uh, he had other things going on. So I wanted to introduce this because as people are listening to maybe form your own opinion about how his personality developed and and how you see him as we get through this. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to start with that. I think we'll take a quick break before we get into the beginning of his life. Great. But uh, yeah. OK. OK, perfect. We'll be right back, guys. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. are back and we are going to start talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. So I'll leave it to you, Kathy, to lead us through the story. Okay. All right. So Jeffrey Dahmer was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, on May 21st, 1960 to Lionel and Joyce Dahmer. His parents were married in August 24th, 1959. So just, just about nine months um, after they married, he was born. So she was either already pregnant or became pregnant right after they, they got married. Um, and so this definitely puts a lot of pressure on a marriage to have a child right away. And, um, I think that it's an important piece to just talk about for a second 
although it may have been normal for the time, I do think that um, it changes things when a kid comes right into the picture after a marriage. That's incredibly stressful. I mean, many people know how stressful having kids is, you know, just to begin with, and then to not even have any time to, I mean, I don't know how long the courtship was, but not Mm -hmm. to have no time to figure out who you are as a couple. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely changes things. So, you know, both of his, his parents did work at least until he was born. His mother um, was a teltype machine instructor by profession. And his father was actually still a student of chemistry at Marquette University. But right away, uh, or shortly after they were married, um, the marriage does start to crack. And they didn't have a happy marriage at all. I, I don't think there are any real um, memories or literature, you know, t- discussing how there was a point in the marriage that things were working. And the effects um, were clearly evident in Dahmer's behavior as we, as we move forward. You'll see that. So he knew that Lionel, the father knew that um, his wife was uncomfortable and, and they needed more space. And so being the husband that he was, because it's reported that he actually was very um, attentive in certain ways to her, even though the marriage wasn't great, mm-hmm. they, he still wanted the best for his wife and her being pregnant. They moved to his mother's house. Um, but then even after moving in there, the cracks in the marriage start to show really early. And so part of the things that, um, part of what complicated this was Joyce had a really difficult pregnancy with Jeffrey Mm -hmm. and, and every little thing seemed to annoy her. So right there, I'm imagining like, I'm imagining they weren't together that long. They get married. Then they move in with his mother. Right. I mean, mean, that's stressful enough. Right. And who knows how much the mother wanted to have a say in things. Yeah, Lord knows. So, and and then Joyce is extremely uncomfortable physically. And her discomfort becomes so extreme, she's she's forced to quit her job. So uh, there's a couple things here. First of all, the discomfort could also um, end up being resentful towards the child. You bet. Before the child's even born. Um, we talk about how that sort of maternal stress can be handed down through the cortisol, through to the child. Um, so there's that piece. And mm-hmm. then her discomfort is so extreme, she's forced to quit her job. We don't know how much she was, you know, in love with this job or married to this job. But there's also a piece of independence that's gone, an identity that's gone. And now she's fully has to be fully attentive to this child that's making her completely uncomfortable. Yeah, and it begs the question at that time period whether she was popping pills or... Yes. And and, uh, there is is some literature that points to that. So before I get to that point, after he's born, after Jeffrey's born, her happiness is is really short-lived because she attempts to breastfeed and and she fails, or, or the process fails, so she has to stop. And that, again, when we talk about attachment or we talk about bonding, and although mothers who don't breastfeed certainly can still have bonding and certainly can still have healthy children, it was one more added layer to their lack of attachment. Yeah. So right off the bat, problems with mom. Right off the bat, um, just uh, a lot of... uh, anxiety, discomfort, resentment. 
So Joyce has been described as needy, you know, and I guess that's subjective. I don't really know what that means, but she was known to be argumentative, um, punitive with, with her husband and even the neighbors. Um, and just like you were saying, Shannon, it was said that she was abusing sleeping pills and laxatives. I don't know if that was while she was pregnant. Yeah, that that's what it kind of, right? Like, that's where your brain goes to is it's like at that time, I don't know necessarily how cautious they were about that sort of thing. Right, exactly. I mean, women smoked. Right. So if he was born addicted, that that's a whole other layer. Right. And sleeping pills are highly addictive. Oh, my God. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, uh, who knows, you know, if she could have been abusing sleeping pills and other things and maybe she's not breastfeeding, but she's pumping and he's getting that breast. I mean, there's just so many yeah, Things like along with your head, stress, right? Along with what? Along with the stress and the chaos of yes. the relationship, and then the stressful hormones and the cortisol surges, and oh my goodness. Okay, so yeah, so so stuff with mom, not good. Stuff with yeah. dad, not great, but better. Okay. Um, you know, he did. Jeffrey reported having some positive memories with his father, especially early on. They'd watch Popeye together, and this was about the age, so about four years old, five years old. This is when dad starts to talk to Jeffrey about what he does for a living. And, and Jeffrey starts to get very interested in chemistry. So up until about the age of four, um, he, Dahmer appeared to meet all of those uh, developmental milestones, you know, walking, whatever, everything from birth till four. I'm not going to go through all those, but he hit all of the, the milestones when he was supposed to. So he wasn't delayed in any way. And he was actually described as happy and normal you know we didn't see this sort of flat affect uh or or you know no eye contact or colicky he was happy he was quote unquote normal uh okay. he was described as curious which can be really healthy for kids you know they, they become imaginative and curious he, he had a fascination with animals but not anything uh you know delinquent he he loved animals um, but he did, ha he starts to have early health stuff that for kids can be really uncomfortable. So he starts to have an abnormal amount of ear infections, which for a lot of kids, I, I had, I had them, they're awful, they're debilitating, they're extremely painful. And, uh, you know, a lot of kids are sort of in and out of the ear, nose and throat doctor at this age. And he, he had an abnormal amount. And if you have, I had chronic ear infections and it can take a kid out for a while. So I'm not sure how much that affected his his mood, his development, but they are pretty debilitating if you've never had one before, especially as a child. And it certainly did get in the way of his happiness and his enjoyment um, being a child. Yeah. I mean, medical trauma, right? Mm -hmm. So the stress reactions, you know, you can... You, you start to be avoidant, you start to have hyper arousal, you know, fight or flight, you know, right. you could experience the trauma, you, you might have had nightmares or dream, you know, so I imagine Couldn't sleep, all of that. Yeah. So his dad at this time, I, I don't know if this was a distraction to like help, you know, help him kind of get out of his head about all that. But th it was at this time that he begins to watch his father bring home stuff from school and, and work. And he would watch his father crush the bones of animals he was researching. So animals that were already dead, um, yeah. he would bring home and he would, he would watch dad start to do these experiments, which clearly, you know, is the start of his early fascination with anatomy and, and dissection and all of that stuff. Um, 
So again, we have a second health thing that happens at about four and a half. He's diagnosed with a double hernia, which requires surgery. Age of four, that's so bizarre and kind of rare. Young boys can have hernias, but um, this poor kid. So he's chronic ear infections and has a double hernia. Nobody talks to him about this surgery. Hmm. So it brings on a lot of fear. Um, he's, he's left feeling very open and exposed after the surgery. Nobody explained to him what was going on. He was scared by the operation. He, uh, he remembers complete strangers coming up to him and exploring his body, which is very interesting because this becomes a part of his fixation down the road. And, um, after this is when his parents notice a change in his personality. I bet. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that's the, just just you saying they didn't talk to him about it. It's like it's like aliens poking at you, you know, the exactly. dream of an of aliens like poking at you and you not don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that's what it feel like for a little kid. I mean, as a five year old, right? I, I, yeah, I think I think people don't understand like kids need to be talked to about things. <laughs> just staggers me i remember around the same age i think i was a couple years older i had to go because of my ear infections i had to have surgery and i remember how much my mom and dad had to sit and talk to me about how everything was going to be okay and how but i remember being terrified i knew i had to go under i had it's so traumatizing it's traumatizing for an adult let alone you know four or five year old kid and back in the what is this 70s or whatever yeah um yeah so so there's that now added piece right so what we but like 1964 right 1964 1964 yeah not even the 70s yeah like woo that's uh, you know so when people say his personality changed after it's like well of course it's it wasn't that the surgery did some weird thing it was the events and the experience around the surgery and what it represented for him so to add insult to injury by the time he turned six they, they give birth to a second son uh, named David. So, and I don't know how much they talk about even mom being pregnant or whatever, but Jeff was actually given the duty to name his brother, which I don't know if that's a good thing or pressure. I don't know. Jeffrey's given the duty to name his brother. I think that's given to him as a gift. Um, but even with that, it didn't really have a dramatic effect on, on Dahmer and he never really attached much to his brother. Um, he was pretty neutral to his brother's existence. They never really became close. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right after that birth, they moved to Ohio. So you have surgery, you have trauma, you have a birth, you have a move. Yeah. And you have uh, apparently like parents that struggle in the area of communication. <laughs> so, yes. you know, they're not communicating to each other. You said the marriage wasn't that great. So we can extrapolate that communication wasn't their thing and they have a history of sort of not talking about stuff and absolutely and so all all of the as all of this is happening and the parents are probably not talking to each other and the brothers aren't talking to each other they relocate three times before settling into a home with a two acre wooded lot which is relevant um so relocating three times so we have a surgery we have a birth we have three moves um trauma all of this stuff is happening so it's at this time that dad starts to notice that the previous gregarious Jeff 
starts to become very shy and withdrawn. Mm-hmm. Um, so dad gets him a dog to help with <laughs> all of the moving and the isolation. Um, right. And he would then help his dad out in the garden and raise sheep. So a lot in a few years. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just, I'm really struck by the attachment issues. <laughs> I mean, I understand that he could probably attach easier to a dog because animals are kind of about projection. Like we project ourselves onto our animals. Mm-hmm. And so we relate to them like we're relating to ourselves and, you know, not that they're not their own beings. They obviously are, but they don't talk to us in the, in a traditional sense. And and then all these moves and all these disruptions and all this chaos inside his own body, inside his mom's body. And he's, no one's asking him how he feels. They're just kind of throwing no, things at him. Lord, no. And right. there's, you know, broken animal bones. Like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> right. It seems a little, it seems a little off. I mean, I realize he's one of the, when we, when we start to get into the whole story of his childhood, like, and you look back at it a little bit, it's like, of course, you know, he seems a little bit more normal than the others, but, but, but. still, it's still odd. And it's still just, like you said, I think um, what you said with just the disruption in his own body and the attachment stuff with mom, there was a lot of chaos, trauma and disruption in the first, what we would call sensitive period of a child's life. Absolutely. I think um, I think that's probably a great place for us to take our a break. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay. Great. We'll take a break right here, and we'll come back, and we'll go to elementary school with Jeffrey Dahmer. We'll be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. everyone this is shannon and kathy with terror talk we are back from the break and i believe jeffrey is in elementary school now or is he just starting he is just starting um at hazel elementary he's in first grade his at this time his mother was known to spend a lot of time in bed um and so one of his teachers clearly noticed especially early early on teachers notice you know family dynamics the teacher tries to get Jeffrey more involved with other students. She starts to really notice his withdrawal, but he was unmotivated. It was pretty unsuccessful. Um, So the teacher, you know, sees this child probably recognizes mom's really not showing up to a whole hell of a lot. And at that time it was pretty strict gender roles. Mom was the one showing up to parent teacher conferences. Mom was handling the school stuff. And if she's in bed all day, um, you know, the school, They're noticing that. So they try to motivate him and it's unsuccessful. And then they move again. (laughs) So the family moves to another home where he forms his first real childhood friend, Lee. Mm -hmm. And so this friendship is also short lived. And for 
what we probably will see as his first maybe early warning sign. He becomes close with a new teacher at the school um, and he brings her tadpoles as a gift. He has this obsession with all animals, creatures. He brings her tadpoles as a gift. So one day he, he goes to school and he finds out that the teacher gave away the tadpoles to Lee. Hmm. So I want to pause there just for a second, because as a kid with no mom attaches to this female teacher, we minimize this stuff quite a bit. And I'll tell you, I work with a lot of kids and when they get into high school, sometimes they'll say, they'll talk about early stories like this that stay in their head about the first time they remember feeling um, unloved or rejected so I think as adults, we, we, we kind of can glaze over something like this. Mm-hmm. But to Jeffrey, I think this was a really big deal because maybe this teacher was the old, sort of feeling like the mother he didn't have. Right. And then she gives away these tadpoles to his best friend. Right. Like it was a big deal for him to give these tadpoles because mm-hmm. it's a representation of his father, right? The animals. It's like the way he was attaching to his father was through animals. I realized it was through bones, but through animals and, and wilderness probably. And like, that's the only parent he ever spent time with. And then he, he's like giving a piece of himself and who he is and what he loves and what he likes. And it, yeah. And it's given away and it's um, minimized. Right. Yep. So it's, it's made, it's made to feel like it didn't matter. Absolutely. And it really, really triggers him. Yeah. He finds this out. He goes over to Lee's house. He pours motor oil in the bowl and he kills the tadpoles. Oh, goodness. This is actually very unusual for him because he actually had a lot of empathy for animals and there are no records indicating that he ever harmed an animal. So I think a lot of people listening to this would go, oh, yep, you know, there's there's that first sign of killing animals. But this was really the only recorded incident. Yeah. And I think it was really to hurt Lee. It was. I mean, it sounds like it was. It wasn't about torturing animals. Uh, and, and at that point, he had probably detached from the tadpoles because they didn't represent anything anymore. So right. He's, his attachment style is so, yeah. All of it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I guess there, at, at one point, the other, the other thing about that is at one point he did plan on killing a stray dog, but after he looked directly into the dog's eyes, he couldn't do it. So this is a reported incident. So this, again, is just um, atypical in some ways. Um, his empathy for animals are, and even down the road, we'll sort of see unusual forms of empathy with some of his victims. Right. Well, I mean, the urges were there. The he urges was, were there. He was just, he was fighting with it. Here's, here's what's interesting, though, is this was an urge that he could fight but when it came to other urges, he couldn't, he just couldn't do it. Right. And I think that that leads sometimes people to think, well, could he really not control it? Did he really want to try to control it? Cause there are certain things he could control. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so his parents, when his parents fought, so his parents are starting to fight a lot more now and he's getting a little bit older. Jeffrey was very sensitive and he took every one of these fights to heart. Um, the fights become constant they're ongoing. Um, at some point around this age, 
Jeffrey was told that his mother had postpartum depression after her pregnancy with him. I don't know how he finds that out, but certainly he takes this to mean that he was some of the cause of the discord between his parents. Yeah, I wonder if he, um, if that was just a confirmation of what he already felt from his mother. Possibly. Um, the ultimate rejection of the mother to the son and then those rejected feelings just being like uh, ego syntonic, we call that. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's syntonic with how he already felt about himself. And so just like that confirmation of like, yeah, I knew that, you know, that she's the rejecting mother, basically. Yeah. So as you can imagine, he's just a boiling pot. Yeah. So we have the teacher, the best friend, the mother, the moves, all rejection, rejection, change, adjustment, rejection. There's no stability. There's no ability to really attach because mm -hmm. everything is up and moving all the time. Yeah. So when he's eight years old, um, when he was eight years old, excuse me, there, there's some speculation that he was molested by an older neighbor boy um, in, in rural Bath Township. It was unreported at the time. And I don't think they've ever proven it, but the, the childhood incident may play a pivotal role in understanding Dahmer's subsequent crimes, but they've never proven it. And, and was that something he spoke about that we know of? or um, To be honest with you, I'm not sure. I don't know if he ever spoke about this himself, um, or if he did. I don't know if they just don't trust the memory. I'm not sure. Yeah, understood. Um, so... It plays, you know, it, it could play a pivotal role in this. Likewise, the ferocious arguments between his parents, who later divorce, um, mm -hmm. clearly demonstrate that there is no safe haven for him. Yeah. So everything feels, it, it, and like you were saying at the very beginning, when we were talking about personality development, when the defenses start to mm -hmm. kick in. Yep. And now he has split off what's the point of emotions he's in complete survival well yeah i mean he he's been taught from i would argue in the womb that his needs don't matter that's right so by the age of 10 this is when Dahmer starts to experiment with dead animals he starts to decapitate rodents these these are animals you know these are dead animals he did not kill these animals he starts decapitating rodents he starts bleaching chicken bones with acid. Hmm. Uh, he nailed the dog's carcass to a tree and uh, mounted its head on a stake. Hmm. His parents, I love this. His parents worried, but figured it was just a boy thing. Oh, boy. Jeez. Oh, well, I mean, with the dad that deals with that kind of stuff, I, I don't know. Maybe he thought somehow it was like, that's my son. I don't know. <laughs> Right. And also just the time, you know, I think if a boy yeah. did that now, we have different, you know, although there's still gender norms, I think we're a little bit more yeah. uh, evolved in that sense that that is not a normal boy thing to nail no. a dog's carcass to a tree. No, no, it's not. And mounts its head on a stake. So, but it also, I think, emphasizes really how detached the parents are too. Oh, yeah. kind of worried, but he'll be okay. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. They didn't That's ask where the dog it. came from, right? You know, it's just bizarre. So, yeah. But, the, you know, he was always attracted to animals, not sexually, but he was always attracted to animals ever since childhood. 
So he was reported to have captured insects and butterflies, which he used to store in jars. He would keep in like a little wood shed. He was fascinated by animal animal anatomy, which started back when he was four, when dad started to bring all the stuff home. Yeah. So he would start to store larger animals. He would store carcasses, which he would dismember just to satisfy a curiosity. Hmm. But according to him, like I'd said before, he never tortured or killed an animal. Um, So on one of his excursions, he found the carcass of a dog and cut it open. Um, and he hung it in the woods and then he would just ride around on his bike with garbage bags, looking for animal carcasses. He would, he would just pick them up and put them in these bags. And he was obsessed with investigating the insides of animals. So he would take these animals home and for hours, his dad would come looking for him for hours. He would just sit out in the shed and just dissect and became very fixated. Yeah. Obsession. It was an obsession. And I imagine he's not, you know, popular with, um yeah and we'll talk a little bit about his his uh social stuff in a moment but yeah he spent the majority of his time doing this um around 11 12 seeing his father clean the fam uh, the family home of animal bones his interest you know gains he starts to gain a momentum in this and so he would even describe the sound of bones as being like this really exciting sound i mean this exciting feeling um so he was becoming increasingly withdrawn and rigid during this time everything was attended to um everything was around these dissections he was very shy and clearly he would spend most of his time alone whether it was in his bedroom or or doing this Mm -hmm. so by his early teens he was completely disengaged he was tense and he didn't have a lot of friends. Yeah, I can't imagine why he would. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not interested in people. Mm-hmm. He's not interested in relationship because he has no frame of reference for it. Right. I mean, from what I can tell, from what, what you're saying, you know, his only form of relationship was this attachment to his father early on. And his father's obsession was this bones and and all of that whatever he was showing him or at least that's the way the kid interpreted it right was that that's what dad did in right so if i'm interested in that i have an attachment to dad i mean you know you could go off in that realm like Mm -hmm. the 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 only the The only only thing he had had was that exactly and um although he's way too early to be diagnosed with any sort of personality disorder this is where i think we start looking at the diagnosis of uh schizotypal Mm-hmm. personality a type anyway not disorder but type and it's you know very isolated withdrawn bizarre um so that's you know we'll kind of file that table that for later so right. by the age so of if you want to if you want to mention like the attachment style or any of that or we're going to get into that probably um the attachment style specifically with like he's he's got an ambivalent attachment i'm i'm guessing i would say either ambivalent or anxious um <laughs> I've seen that hybrided a lot in the literature, like anxious, ambivalent, like dash ambivalent. So there, and there's almost like a, a, a neglectful attachment, I think as well. I think it depends on the parent, to be honest. I think there, I just get this sense that like the only reason why I go in the ambivalent area and, you know, you tell me what you think, but is the idea that, you know, mom 
it's that idea that mom doubts herself, right? So right. if we go back to pregnancy and early childhood, it's like mom doubts herself and is anxious about her own ability to parent. And then, you know, those mirror neurons, right? Like right. with the baby and then the baby's anxious and thinks, oh no, nobody knows what's going on. Sure. If mom doesn't know what's going on, then I definitely don't know what's going on. And then that just creates that anxious, ambivalent attachment between the two of them. Absolutely. And absolutely. And he yeah. did, and he did care, you know, so with right. neglectful attachment, you'll see more of like the, the indifference mm-hmm. um, where he still really did. He still really was invested in their relationship, even though he was devastated by it and he was rejected mm-hmm. by it. Um, and we also don't know, you know, the in and out of every single day, but mom did present with, a, um, a, you know, a borderline personality type. In yeah. Some ways. So clear when you were talking about her being like argumentative and needy. Well, y- yeah. And, and also some of the, just the risky sort of self harming stuff and the, yeah. the, uh, her relational stuff. And so a lot of times what we'll see with parents who, have um, borderline personality type or, or disorders, the child will have an ambivalent attachment because you never know what you're going to get day to day with that parent. Yeah. It's inconsistent. And, and there, and, and borderline personality structure is filled with fear and panic and right. anxiety. And so they don't like, it, it would be difficult for him to not take that on from birth. Absolutely. Yeah. And so to, to, to make this even more complex, we're looking now, this is the, maybe the early seventies because he's 14. Um, he starts to have his first homosexual urges. And so clearly this was not anything anybody talked about, certainly not in the Midwest and certainly Mm -hmm. not in the seventies. So he has to hold this in. Yeah, but he does have his first homosexual experience with a boy who lives across the street, and it involved kissing and fondling. Mm-hmm. And allegedly, this was the first time he became aware of his homosexuality. But due to the time, you know, he did not let this be known, and it was a huge detriment. Sounds um, like more. It sounds like more urges that he felt he wasn't allowed to have. Absolutely, it was another piece that he had to split off. Yeah. Um. Oof. So li- what'd you say? I'm sorry, Shannon. I just said that's really tough. It's that's, really tough. There's it, so many parts of him that don't make sense to, to him. You know, like right. I imagine him being anxious, confused, scared, um, and, and sort of having a love-hate relationship with himself. And we, it's interesting you say that because later we discover that his attraction for men was coupled with the fantasy of killing them and dissecting them, which to me, there's so much projection there. there so he, he starts to say, I started having obsessive thoughts of violence intermingled with sex and it got worse and worse. And I didn't know how to tell anyone about it. So I didn't. I kept it all inside. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I think we're going to take a break. Um, but. it's really sounding like what you're saying that just he's you're describing a borderline condition too yes right yes so before we take the break i just want to say um he his fantasy crosses the line at this age and he then knocks out a local jogger with a bat and he lies down next to him um he would fantasize about lying next to an unconscious man. That was a big fantasy for him. So at 14, he knocks out this guy as his first victim. Um, 
this guy would jog by, well, I'm sorry, it was not his first victim. It was his first attempted victim. He would fantasize about this jogger who ran by every single day at this certain time. So he, he goes to prepare to do this, but the jogger doesn't come by on that day um, that he plans to attack him. But this is where his fantasies now really start to kick in. We're going to take a break here, but I just wanted to add that last piece before we stop. Yeah, he's starting to plan. Yes. Right? Great. Well, we're, we're going to take a break, and I think we're going to come back with the high school years. Is mm-hmm. that yeah, with high school. Okay. okay, we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. We're back. This is Shannon and Kathy with Terror Talk, and I believe we're just about to get into um, Dahmer's high school years. Yeah, so we finished up um, talking about, we about age 14 when we took the break so at this point you know clearly he's feeling super alone he's isolated he feels unwanted he feels different um he had no future plans and he starts this is where he now starts bringing alcohol to school Mm. so he starts high school at revere high school he was known to be average in intellect his grades fluctuated anywhere from a's to f's you know just dependent Mm -hmm. he actually had an interest in tennis and he was also part of the school band so he did include himself but as we know tennis is pretty you know it's not really a team sport yeah (laughs) um and band you don't really have to talk to anybody you're playing an instrument no it's like this appearance of being involved that's right So, and I think he probably joined these things because his parents continued to fight and it was probably a way to, for him to not have to be home. Right. So the fighting continues to escalate and he actually, Jeffrey actually described his mother at this time as having a psych, as having psychological problems reflecting on a mental breakdown in his early childhood. So clearly home keeps getting worse. Yeah, I'm surprised they're still together. Right. Well, and I think because at this time, too, divorce was really stigmatized. Right. So Jeffrey starts Revere High School. Everyone tries to keep their distance from him. They thought he was kind of strange He because of the way he would talk. He had a very short temper. But after a while, he would use his drinking. Um, and he learned if, that he could drink a lot he could drink with the best of him and then he could fit in in certain circles helped him yeah it was like you know it gave him that that liquid courage like they say right well if you're saying that you're thinking he's schizotypal then Mm -hmm. like that severe social anxiety that comes with that and the paranoia and Mm -hmm. the realization and all the stuff that comes with that the alcohol would help him relate Yep, absolutely. And reduce anxiety, at least at first. Yes. So he knew that if he would, so coupled with, so he's got the alcohol, but then he also knew if he would act different, he would create like strange public scenes. I mean, scenes in public places. Like he'd pretend like he was having a seizure. He would, And people would watch him and he would start to get this sort of strange attention. Hmm. Um, so he started to learn how to use, I don't know if we define, it's not really a charm, but he definitely found, and this is relevant later, 
he found a way to use whatever his obscurities were to attract people. Mm. Um, so on a high school trip to Washington, D.C., he tells his classmates that he would make a call to the vice president at the time, who was Walter Mondale. Just takes makes the statement where well, I'm going to make a call. And they're like, what? <laughs> but he's able to actually talk his way into the executive office to meet the vice president. So he maneuvers this. And again, it highlights that when he wanted to be, and this is where the, this is where the courts um, and where his evaluators said, is he really schizotypal? Because he could actually be very polite and well-mannered with authority when he wanted to be. And you and I have had this conversation in other uh, podcasts where we talk about how if someone's able to control their impulse in certain situations, is it then really this disorder? Mm -hmm. So he learned how to fool his authority figures by appearing respectful and together. If you're truly schizotypal, can you do that? I don't know. I don't know. But this is where things start to go, man, he's so atypical. He's not fitting one thing or another. Well, maybe, maybe it's that, I mean, I don't know yet. We're just like, vamping because exactly the whole story yet but Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the the parts of it that are not the disorder so you know uncomfortable with close relationships and eccentric behavior and that kind of stuff he's definitely exhibiting that stuff absolutely it's it's whether or not it goes into the disorder which would be more like you know bizarre fantasies which we've heard you say you know, right. critical thinking, you know, digressions. I don't know. We don't sort of know that. At least I don't know that yet as I've listened so far, but maybe we'll. And we also don't know if he's abusing substance while he's doing this and it just makes it easier for him to do it. We don't know. Yeah. Not at this point. Not at this point. So he picks up this other weird. He likes to trace around bodies with chalk on the, in, in the classroom settings. He's obsessed with death, man. He's obsessed <laughs> with death and bodies. So yeah. soon after he becomes really dependent on alcohol, he starts to drink heavily every single day. Mm-hmm. And then the compulsions around masturbating starts as well. Mm-hmm. So now he has, just to sort of revisit all this, he's having violent fantasies. He's having homosexual fantasies. He's having... Uh, He's starting to drink a lot of alcohol. He's starting to compulsively masturbate. Some of these things in isolation, not so bad. All of them together, mm-hmm. a recipe for disaster. You bet. So he would then go home and he would start to hit a tree with a stick. Okay. While ruminating about his parents' bad marriage and his sexuality. He starts to put all of these, this stuff together. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming there's a lot of blame and shame and all of this. So he never really engages with people. So he has a lot of time to internalize and fantasize. Yeah. And he's and, so compulsive. He's so obsessive, obsessive and compulsive that that's right. I would imagine that's a drain that he would go down and he couldn't get himself back out of it most of the time. Absolutely. And, and, and there's probably some dissociativeness going on and all of this. So, one of the things I, I learned in my forensic training is when you're working with someone who is an offender of some sort, fantasy is often seen as rehearsal. So uh, it then becomes the actuality in it for many people, not for all of them, but for many people, it then becomes actuality and people end up acting out on it. Um, so this is, this is sort of, he is already starting to 
fantasize and rehearse what he wants to do. Yeah, and this is early to late teens, so remember how young he is as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So during his senior year, his father then files for divorce. After <laughs> mom and dad have tried marriage counseling, it does not work. Yeah. So the divorce, even though it was a very tumultuous and contentious marriage, it's very hard on Jeffrey. He's very embarrassed of the divorce and desperately wanted his parents to stay together because, again, this is another stigma. So he has the divorce. He has the homosexuality. He has the feeling different. All of this stuff he's sitting with. He's not talking to a therapist. It's just brewing. Yeah, and I'm sure they probably didn't have a good conversation about the divorce with him. Uh, Probably not. So they didn't seem to really talk to him about anything. So it's noted that this was the time he began to focus on the concept concept of being left or abandoned. And he became obsessed with people not leaving him. This is where his biggest fear, even though it had been sitting there that whole time and he was somewhat conscious of it and he knew he was uncomfortable by it. This is where he starts to become obsessed with abandonment and avoid avoiding abandonment, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, this plays a really important role in his kidnapping and murders. So yeah, whatever part of a person he could remain connected with, he would keep. And later it becomes even part of their anatomy, right? Well, right. And, you know, that just goes along with what we were saying about the borderline condition that's developed here. Right. So he yeah. claims that his compulsions towards necrophilia and murder began around this age. Mm -hmm. But it appears that the breakdown of his parents' marriage and their acrimonious divorce a few years later may have actually been the catalyst for turning these thoughts into actions. This is according to him. So he begins to fantasize. (laughs) What did you say, Shannon? Isn't that what the profilers say? Where Yes. The the event. The event. All goes to hell. the turning point. Yes. Um, so he begins to fantasize about murder when he's 18 years old is when it really starts. And then as he starts to go- come into his adulthood, the fantasies just continue to increase with time. I'm sure. I'm sure. So that's zero to 18, right? That's zero to 18. Well, let's see. What do I see? Uh, medical trauma, birth trauma, total ambivalent or anxious attachment. Um borderline condition addiction i mean you know (laughs) there's a lot going on there uh sexual identity right sexual identity issues because i've i mean we haven't gotten to this part really but you know later on he talks extensively about how he feels about his homosexuality so Mm -hmm. Um, he he did everything to fight it so right so i mean like i was saying earlier first four years sensitive period of his life completely rocked with chaos and then it just continued. Yeah. It continued. Yeah. And again, this is all in an effort to understand him, right? Not, right. Not justify. Maintain. Right. We always maintain in our, in our true crime psychology episodes that just a re- reminder that this is, this is to understand and explain. We're curious about the human condition, not to give excuses or blame mothers. It's just, this is what it was. Yes. Um, and I believe that's where we're going to end this episode today. Yes, it is. So you want to tell peeps a little bit about what maybe might be coming in the second episode or. Yeah. So we're going to, the next episode is really going to focus on after high school, when he starts to individuate out of the home, he actually joins the military 
Um, and this is where he actually, uh, before the military, we're going to talk about his first known murder, um, where he was barely 18 years old. So we're going to start to get into sort of the, the early stages of his criminal behavior. Okay, great. Looking forward to it. So again, this is our four-part series on Jeffrey Dahmer. And um, we'll be back on Friday with an episode of our companion show, Shrink Chat. And then next Wednesday, we'll upload the second in this series for our main show, Terror Talk, which you're listening to. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.